Uh, happy Christmas season. First Sunday of Advent. <clears throat> Many of our favorite times of the year. Um, we are starting an Advent series. We're going to be looking at uh, faith, hope, love, joy, and peace. And so this morning is hope. If you have a Bible, we're going to be kind of in many different places, but if you want, page 740 is, or um, excuse me, page 742 on Isaiah 64, we'll be uh, looking at that, the first seven verses or so and some other scriptures. But as we're uh, turning there, hope, I don't know how much time you have spent thinking through you know, how to, how to define hope, what is hope, trying to understand what hope is. And, um, you know, I'm a lover of history. I like to read most books that I read are written by people who have been dead for centuries. And so I kind of went back. I was like, well, what are what, like ancient people wrote about hope? Like, what did they have to say about hope? And so let's travel back in time, if you can. Uh, 700 years before Christ, there was this Greek guy named Hesiod. Um, and he wrote a, maybe you, you know that story of the Pandora's box, right? From Greek mythology, the idea of um, this, uh, this, this person, Pandora, they had this, this jar, this box that was full of all the evils and sufferings in the world, right? This is how the Greeks kind of wrestled with uh, the existence of evil. And so this jar was opened and it unleashed, you know, all the horrible things of our human existence all into the world. But... As soon as she closed the jar, Hesiod says that there's one thing that remained in the jar that was not released, and that was hope. Only hope remained. As all these evils were unleashed into the world, only hope remained for humans to embrace. And so I want to first kind of throw out there that um, hope was early on here considered almost like a, like a remedy to suffering. Hope was a remedy to suffering. But centuries later, another um, smart guy named Aristotle wrote about how hope is a characterization of those who are brave and courageous, right? The cowardly maybe um, have some despairing in them, but when you find a brave person or somebody that is really courageous, you're going to find a hopeful person because their bravery is based on something in the future that they are hoping in that drives them towards what they were doing. And so in that way, we could say, not only is hope an antidote to suffering, but hope also matches up what you and I believe about the future. What you and I believe about the future helps us define what, what we hope in, right? What, what do we hope in? So those two things are just two examples of ways that people, you know, try to wrestle with this, this feeling, this emotion, wrapping their arms around hope, because the reality is hope is just this innate thing within us, right? It is there, and it has been. Um, since we can write down stories, people have been writing about this, this thing called hope inside of us. Um, another writer in the 17th century, um, this French guy, uh, is interesting. He said, hope is the last thing that dies in man. Hope is the last thing that dies in man. It's a pretty profound statement, and I think it rings true. And of course, Scripture has a lot to say about hope. 
right? It gives a, a lot of color to this wrestling, this innate uh, feeling we have that when things may be wrong around us, that there's still hope, right? That regardless of what's happening today, that tomorrow has some future to it. There's, there's hope in the morrow, and that's why we labor today. The scripture gives color to this, and so let's first look at Isaiah 63 and see this. Um, before we dig into Isaiah 64, excuse me, um, I want you to understand kind of what's happening. Okay, Isaiah was a prophet. He was around 700 years before Christ. This was not a, a time when the kingdom of Judah, uh, the southern kingdom there, was flourishing. The northern kingdom had been taken away by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom of Judah was also surrounded by this new big world power uh, of the Assyrians. Um, they were kind of surrounded Israel, they, or Judah making threats, these like existential threats about their existence, you know. And so th- it was kind of a tense time if you were living in the kingdom of Judah. And that is what's happening around the words we're about to read. So let's look at this, Isaiah 64. It says 63, doesn't it? Just ignore my, uh, my fifth ever mistake, I think. So here we go. 64 verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I love this verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Exclamation point. That's not really in the Hebrew, but that's, you, you want to put that after such a statement, right? Would you rend the heavens, Lord, and get out of there and come here right now? What a desperate prayer. What a prayer of longing, right? In the midst of a difficult and challenging time, they're saying, Lord, break through the heavens, like rend them, open it up and make your way down, but don't come quietly. Come in a way that the mountains are going to shake and tremble when you get here. When we look at, the word hope is not going to be in these seven verses when we look at them. But it's interesting, you know, what this verse teaches us about the nature of hope, because I think that sometimes we can, when we say um, uh, uh, we have hope in God, at times what we can really be referring to is maybe what he can do for us, some action. Like, I'm really hoping God will do X, Y, Z for me, fill in the blank. And that's not bad. That's there's plenty of reasons why, you know, we, we can hope and pray for God to intervene in our lives. But I'm convinced that's not the first kind of layer or foundation that hope should rest on. What we see in verse 1 here, chapter 64, is a hope of God's presence. Before anything else, before there's an ask, Lord, do this, Lord, do that, we need you here. They're saying, Lord, we need you right now to show up. And thus, biblical hope, you know where it begins? With God and his presence among us. If we lay our hope only in what he can do for us, he may in his grace and mercy show up. I've seen this so many times, time and time again. He can show up and do that thing for us. And it's like, what a mercy, what a grace. Thank you, Lord. But then he's still with you. But when your needs are met, what then becomes of his presence? And I've seen it time and time again. People kind of just, they float away. 
They float away from the body of Christ. They float away from God himself until needs rise up again. Oh, Lord, I need you to do this, and they're back. And God is saying, you know, I was with you this whole time. You need me before anything. And I think Isaiah understood that as he kind of on behalf of his people here cried out, Lord, we need you. We need you to do that. We need your help in a lot of ways, yes, but we need you to show up. Is that how your hope in God is characterized? Like I hope we pray that he intervenes in your life, but can you look at your own hope towards God and say, you know, I just need him in my life. Hold that thought. We're going to be wrestling with that off and on throughout our whole time. He continues on here in verse 2. As when fire sets twigs ablaze. He's a poet, right? As when fire sets, sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. This is kind of a looking to the past when God did show up. And you can read Exodus 19 and other scriptures. There were actual mountains that shook when his presence descended on it. And they're saying, Lord, we need something like that in our present. This prayer is not that he would come quietly, that he would come in a big and powerful way. And he continues on. In verse 5, you come to the help of those who gladly do right. Remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, that is your ways, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us, like, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We shrivel up like a leaf, and the wind, our sins, sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us waste away because of our sins. The tone kind of shifts. It starts off looking at their, their, you know, historical problem. There's an enemy. Their very existence is in danger. There's a lot of unsurety of just like what the future holds. But then it gets beyond that. And they say, you know, like we need help on the outside here, but there's something wrong with your people, with us within too like it's almost like there's an enemy within here it's a deeper problem right they're saying uh all of us have become one like who was unclean we've sinned against you so many among us aren't even calling out for your name and he said in verse seven the really honest comment here to be honest lord it seems that you've hidden your face from us that you're made us wasting away, that you've given us over to our sins. So really they're saying, Lord, you've helped us in the past. You've shown up in the past. We need you to show up again, but there's a bigger problem we need you to deal with. It's this internal brokenness we have. It's this this mess on the inside that wants to rebel against you. Lord, uh, there's so many not calling your name. Can Can you come and save us, Lord? Can you come there in the deepest parts of our heart and in our life? Lord, don't hide your face from us. The cry continually in these verses 
is that they're seeking the presence of God. Don't hide your face from us, Lord. It seems as you've done that. Don't. We need to see it. The nations need to see it. Lord, come down from the heavens. Don't hide yourself from us. I love the Bible's honest like that. I grew up in a way in church where sometimes like you, it almost felt like you weren't allowed to say things like, I think Lord is, the Lord has turned his back on me. I really feel that way in this stage of my life. People would say, well, of course that's not true. He's always with you. So we don't think that. You know, when you kind of get a little reprimanded, you're like, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to say, it's okay to voice that. All over the scripture, people feel that way. And it's a form of almost lament and prayer. And it can be a way to stir up your hope to say, Lord, I know what the truth is. I know you said you're with us. You will never forsake us, but it feels like you're not with us. And as you wrestle with that, it means that you're not satisfied with how things are and you're continually seeking after him. So I want to encourage anyone this morning who almost needs to maybe voice that, Lord, I feel like you've just kind of turned your face away. Voice that and wrestle with him. Be honest with him. It's a good thing. He is near to the brokenhearted and near to the crushed in spirit. So even when things may feel that way, there's promises that he is near. So continue to wrestle with him. We'll see this again. Uh, Hope drives us to that kind of relationship with, with God. Psalm 42. You don't have to turn there. It'll be behind us here. It's a very famous one. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The the word hope is in this passage, but just consider the imagery here. The desire, O rend the heavens and come down. As the deer is panting, Lord, I need you. I, I, I am so hungry for you. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Again, the presence of God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. There's amazing things happen. This is like reading somebody's like journal almost, right? They're hungry for God. Things are obviously going so wrong in their life right now, so difficult. There's tears in verse 3, day and night. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of spot where like just somebody asks just the most simple questions and boom, tears pop up, right? I don't care how the toughest man in this room, like we, we've all been in those situations. It seems like that's where this psalmist was in. And as he was crying out for God, hungry and thirsting for him, he had people around him saying, where is he? With the implication, if he was here, like would things be this way? Is your hope now misplaced here? Like where is your God? There's a mocking tone to this. And then his mind goes back to joyful times, right? The golden days, we like to call them. What was his golden days here? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
it's like Sunday morning a worship service, right? How I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festivals. Like, oh, I remember those joyful times, but I got tears today and people saying, where is your God? You can read the rest of the psalm. It's a really beautiful psalm, but this is how it ends in verse 11. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I love the wrestling here. He says, why are you downcast? Like what is, what, there's a, there, what, what's up with the turmoil in me here? Why? And he says, I, my hope is in God, for I shall praise him, for he is my salvation and my God. Once again, the consistent theme here is the nearness of God is what feeds the hope here. The desire to be in his presence, the desire to be among his people traveling to his house in great songs and joy and, and, and great festivities, just singing his praise, that fuels his hope. And it's when the absence of God is in our life that that hope can become fragile. This way he can become fragile, but he, he still presses forward. He says, I, you know, I, I understand the tension, and maybe it shouldn't be there. I don't know, but it's there. But I'm still going to hope in God and press forward. And this just dots the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, right? These kind of just honest longings after God. I mean, God dwelt in the temple among his people. And um, uh, when the first temple was built, and after centuries, and, you know, they just kind of kept going through cycles of sin and sin and sin. You can read in Ezekiel, it says, in a very dramatic fashion, Ezekiel gets this vision of God's presence actually just picking up out of the temple and just leaving. And it's hard to imagine the, the horror of such a vision when Ezekiel were to, when he told the people around him. Because it was a vision of God leaving his people, right? That's what the vision said. But, but as time went on, it was, they, they came to understand that, you know, they went back to the land, they rebuilt the temple, and, you know, God was with them. But if you read the prophetic writings, they were like, you know, God was with us in the past, yes. And, you know, he was there, but he did leave. But we rebuilt the temple, we're back in the land. But there's, there's a greater need of his presence that we really haven't fully seemed to experience here. Something the prophets talked about that we're still looking forward to. Like, what, what is this? All these prophecies are written centuries before Christ. And as, uh, especially the prophet Isaiah, uh, we can read them innumerable here. And you'll hear many of them. You heard some this morning even. Um, they call the book of Isaiah the, you know, the, the fifth gospel almost. Because there's just so much about Jesus that he looks forward to. Because he looked forward to, uh, in Isaiah 7, a child being born with the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He then spoke a little bit later of that child that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And of the king of his kingdom, there would be no end. This will be through the royal bloodline of King David. This, this future king, the family of David, would rise up and all these names would be his. And of course, centuries later, Israel finds himself just beneath another world power greater than the world has ever seen. This is Rome. 
There was peace in this time, but it was an oppressive peace. It was like, you know, peace by the sword, if you will. All these uh, prophecies were just made, uh, God's people in Israel just red hot and ripe looking like, where is this Messiah? Things are not good. Like, we have all this hope and it's kind of just building up and welling up inside of us. Like, what, where is this Messiah? Where is this Christ? Is he going to come? And, and this is where we get into the, teenage, the, 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 the Christmas story that is just year after year is just so amazing because of all the people that God should choose, to, to satisfy these things and to begin fulfilling the words that he said and begin fulfilling the hope of his people, he finds a 14 or 15-year-old girl, right? Which is amazing, right? You want to find the, you know, 30-year-old, like, noble kind of leader woman that everybody looks up to and just shoots. No, he chooses this teenager who's not even married, and he appears to her. Luke 1, 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to, from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. As Maureen was saying, there's so many things become route when we hear these stories. Oh yeah, we know this story. Just pretend like it's the first time. This is a wild story. Just put on Mary's shoes for a minute here. You're sitting in your room, an angel shows up. You're 14 years old and says, God has favored you. Greetings. That's crazy, right? And listen to her response. She was greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. We're a discerning young woman. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, means the one who saves. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." She's then told that this conception would come from God and that her child would be called the Son of God. And here we begin seeing hope fulfilled. This king was coming. He was coming to apparently take up his throne and reign, to reign over his people, the house of Jacob forever. And this kingdom was not just going to be like the the kingdoms of this world that rise and they peak and they fall and they go up and they peak and they fall. Like this kingdom would be one that, that comes... And it never ends. Something the world has never seen before. I don't know what it's like to be Mary. All we, all we hear of her response is, may it be according to your word. But did she have like goosebumps? Nervousness? Like, we don't know. She just said, okay, Lord, let it be. Isaiah 64. Oh, that she would rend the heavens and come down the mountains would tremble before you. Maybe Mary thought about that verse. I don't know. Maybe that was on her mind somewhere. But in this case, okay, as Isaiah 64, I believe, points towards the day when he does return and the mountains will quake. But in this moment, he was rending the heavens and coming down, but the mountains would be still, right? 
Everything would be still. Everything would be quiet as he comes to this 14 and 15 year or 15 year old woman. And God himself would take on flesh. Not coming as a strong, you know, man in full adulthood, but choosing in his most lowliest manner to, to become just like every single person in this room, the same way we entered into human history as a needy, crying baby, an infant. And that's the most amazing thing that no other religion in the world has anything like it because it makes no sense Right? It's what God would be so humble as to say, I'm going to become a baby. That's Jesus, the first Christmas morning that hope indeed was born. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. That's Luke's kind of way as a historian to say, this, is, this really happened. This is the day. This is the time. Like, okay, got that? This is not a fake story here. Verse 3. And all went up to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. That the mountain shaked, and, you know, the world, the nations, you know, tremble at this, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. He was born amongst the animals. But hope was born and it entered into this world. But hope did not remain in the manger. Jesus grew. He grew in favor with God and in favor with men. He brought great power with him to this earth and he healed. He cast out demons. He preached with great authority. He, he spent time with the most busted up uh, sinners and broken people of his day of the prostitutes. He, he fearly challenged those in the highest authority of his day. And then he was nailed to the cross, this promised child, God with us, who willingly gave himself up to be brutally murdered by the Romans and to use their evil actions for his glorious purpose, to die for the sins of the world and to then conquer death itself. But then he left this earth. The disciples are a little confused about this. And granted, right, because all the scriptures of hope and this king coming and Jesus did all these things and now he just conquered death and their first question was like, great, like the kingdom's here now, right? You're bringing the kingdom back to Israel and we're, this is happening. He goes, I, I'm, I'm actually going to leave. But don't worry, like I need to leave because my spirit's coming. Just stay here in Jerusalem just for a little while. I need to leave. And he left. And so they waited around, and his presence did come. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's a, the Advent season really is like that waiting. Because in the Bible, God's people did a lot of waiting, you know? They waited 
when the Assyrians and the, the Babylonians and they were oppressed and they, all, you know, the, the righteous in Israel, those, their leaders were sinning and just falling away from God and there's just all these promises that God remained and they waited and they waited and they said, Lord, are you going to fix this? Are you going to come and be here in a permanent manner? Like, is this ever going to stop? Can you please, Lord, come? Um, the disciples, Jesus comes and he's there and he's born and, but then he dies and then he leaves and Jesus says, wait, wait. And in so many respects, we're still kind of waiting today, right? There's a promise called the second advent that we're still waiting for. And this is where hope becomes important for us. Because hope maintains us faithfully waiting, just like his disciples did up until that day of Pentecost. They had to wait, and then his spirit did come in a whole new reality that so many were not even expecting. Like Peter doesn't appear, didn't really get things until that morning when the spirit fell on him. And he's like, oh, like I get it now. I get it. Like he's, he's here. There's this new period of time when the forgiveness of sins is possible. But instead of God's spirit just being in the temple, like those who turn and place their faith, like they get his spirit. What an amazing time of grace that has opened up. And he's so thrilled when the spirit falls on him that he goes out and preaches this sermon that thousands become Christians just like that. And the spirit also falls on them. And even in this new time that opens up, Right? And, and God's work has entered this, this, this season called the church where it is still ongoing today. We're still kind of waiting for the final consummation of all things. But our hope today as we wait doesn't have to shame us. Because even people today may be, maybe Thanksgiving dinner you had this. I heard some good reports of the Lord working in some of your families. But maybe around Thanksgiving dinner, right? That same old person is like, oh, are you still like doing the church thing? Like, really? Aren't you, like, embarrassed at this point? Like, maybe you have that person, you know? Like that Psalm 42. Where is your God? You still hoping in this, these, these, these fairy tales here? Like, really? As we wait until he returns, until every eye sees him? But Paul says, no, your hope doesn't have to be put to shame. Listen to this. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified or made right by faith, we have peace with God. He's not hostile toward us. Sin is paid for by Christ. God's uh, uh, disposition toward us is one of peace, not hostility. Praise be to Jesus. Through Jesus, yes. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, it's a whole list here, that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. The word waiting's not there, but consider the waiting in that, right? A lot of Christians, and Paul wrote this, were being persecuted. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. And this suffering produces endurance. And then endurance, like, trains us up within in our character. Then that's where the hope flows out of us as we wait for this to end. And then verse 5, what does it say? And hope does not put us to shame. Why is that? 
This is so interesting. If you've been around me for like the past three months, I've been quoting this verse like to the staff like all the time because I just can't get it out of my head. It's so fascinating. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You may say, okay, pastor, like big deal. Like what's so amazing about that verse? I want you to just like consider this. Hope has not put us to shame because God love has been poured it, you know, the, the, the nerdy thing, the technical thing here is like when Paul uses this, these words, he, he's talking about this in like a passive sense, but active, not past. What he's saying is we're passive in this. We're just kind of sitting and God is pouring his love into our hearts through his spirit. Okay. And it's, he, he says has, and it could really also saying is or can be, or like he's doing this now. And it's not like he did it once in the past and he's done. He is pouring. He can continue to pour just like he has poured his love into our hearts. This is not speaking of action. It's not saying you're, somebody did something and served you. You're like, oh, God's love is important. No, he's saying you're standing, you're like passively sitting, and God has this giant bowl with this big, just got a spout on the end. And, and he's saying, I'm, I just want to pour my love into you right now through my spirit. Kind of just like dip, open your mouth, let me dip my bowl of love into you as you sit. And he's just lavishing his love on us. And he's saying, because of that, your hope is not to be put to shame. This, this is experiential language. For many of you, the idea of experiencing God is nothing new. Like, you, you've had experiences. For some of you, maybe, maybe newer here, like, maybe you come from church traditions that emphasize a lot of learning and knowing God up here, but not a lot of experiencing him. I had my own transformation, I don't know how many years ago at this point, where I was reading verses like this because I was just stuffed with head knowledge so much about God and I kept being encountered myself with these kind of verses. And I'm like, wait, this is nothing more than just sitting and experiencing the love of God as I'm sitting in, on a pew on a Sunday morning as he pours it into me. And I still have a hard time finding words to describe what, like, how do I like describe that event? I don't know. It could be different for whoever is receiving it. But as you're sitting, what Paul is saying, your, your hope can be proven and encouraged and just, you know, strengthened in you because God is pouring his love into you. And I'll just add this in context of our sermon today. If he is pouring his love into your hearts through the Holy Spirit, that means that he is with you. Like he is here right now. And this is the Advent hope. Your hope is not put to shame because God is with you and not just with you. He is pouring himself into you. And Paul says, your hope is not in shame. He's working around you. Are you willing to open up your mouth today and just receive him, receive his love? Because there's a lot of things that we can, we can hope in that don't deliver. Some of my favorite kind of imageries of like false hopes is found in Jeremiah when, when he was talking to his own people and, you know, there's just, it was a horrible time in, in Israel and they're about to collapse and, and Judah. And uh, he, he talks about um, these these cisterns. He says, my people have committed two sins, Jeremiah 2 verse 13. They have forsaken me, 
the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God is saying, I am the water of life. I want to pour myself into them, but they're looking for water elsewhere. And they're trying to create their own containers to hold it, and all that the container is is a container without a bottom. It'd be like waking up in the morning and making a cup of coffee, pouring it and taking a sip and getting nothing out of that cup except coffee everywhere, making the cup utterly useless. That's what Jeremiah is saying. You imagine this cistern is holding something for you that's life-giving, that is hopeful, that can deliver what you're looking for, but really there's no bottom. It's leaking. There's a hole in the side, and anything you're looking for is already out of there as soon as you go to dip and drink of it. Is your hope right now in similar things? Is your hope in, in temporary kind of, you know, uh, earthly things? Is lust embedded into your heart? That you're hoping that can deliver something, that can satisfy you? Day to day, maybe your life is just kind of, it seems just disappointing, right? Maybe you're, you know, in a stage of life where you, you, you feel alone, you feel lonely, and it's just day in the day out, it just kind of feels like a series of many little disappointments. Just one after another, and you're just still looking for that bigger kind of hope somewhere, and so you find yourself living this distractive life, and you're staring at screens too much, or you're, you're you know, toying with dangerous uh, things that could lead to addictions that could destroy. Cisterns with no water. Those are false hopes, and the Advent hope reminds us that yes, hope was born in the manger. Jesus ascended heaven so that the Spirit could descend. And if you were in Christ this morning, you are the temple where his Spirit dwells and he is with you. And I want to speak that over all of you this morning, that reality. He is with you. God is with you. This God wants to share himself with you. He's not a God who stands idly by. He wants to pour into your heart his love. The question I have for you this morning, about to go to communion at this time, and we'll have our prayer team come up afterwards. The question I want to end with this morning is to turn from your false hopes and are you Are you ready to hold your mouth out, to hold it open, to receive the love of God, that he may just pour it into you? Lord, I, I want to pray that right now, Lord. Lord, that we could be people who, Lord, that where we go, we can just be, just like carrying your presence, Lord in our life, that just visibly and just in our own hearts, Lord, that every single person in this room who's a follower of Jesus, Lord, that they can just be experiencing your presence. Lord, I just think of, I, I can't, there's no words that could describe the love that you are, Lord. You are love. And Lord, you, you want to just pour this into us, Lord, and just how hard-hearted we can be or just how we can just be looking for hope in so many places. You're just saying, I'm with you right now. Can I please just share myself with you? Lord, I, maybe, maybe it would be just 
available and open and hungry for you, Lord, as that deer panting by the streams, Lord. We thank you that you gave us hope that first Christmas morning as you were born. And we thank you that our hope is not put to shame because you are with us. And I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.